I am Nancy Lynn Westfield, Director of the Wabash Center. Welcome to Dialogue on Teaching, a Silhouette Interview. The Silhouette Conversations are sparked from a list of standardized questions. We have the good fortune to hear firsthand from teaching exemplars about their teaching and teaching life. Today, our Silhouette guest is Dr. Pamela Leitze. Dr. Leitze is Vice President for Academic and Student Affairs, Associate Professor of Constructive Theology at Meadville Lombard Theological School in Chicago. Welcome, Dean Leitze, to the conversation. Thank you so much for being here. It's my pleasure. Thank you. So we have our 13 questions. Are you ready? Get ready, get ready, get ready. I'm ready. ready. (laughs) So to our listeners, she's got her head in her hand, right? Here we go, here we go, here we go. This is, I, I enjoy doing these interviews, as you can tell. Number one. When you were a child, what did you want to be when you grew up? I want to be an attorney. I wanted to desperately be an attorney because I wanted to, I want to be a civil rights attorney because I was growing up during the civil rights movement. And how did you get there? Like you were just, you were just, you were marching and said, I'm going to be an attorney. Uh, yes, because there weren't that many um, examples of African-American attorneys. And it's certainly, there certainly weren't any black female civil rights attorneys that I could aspire to be at the time or that I knew about. Mm-hmm. There were plenty of teachers, lots of black teachers, lots of black teachers. And that was, a, I think at that time was kind of the major field that Black people went into, and that was teaching. And I didn't want to be a teacher. So look <laughs> uh, what happened. <laughs> I heard you say that. But we we often say, which I actually don't believe, that unless people see it, they won't aspire to it or they won't want to do it. But you just described that you wanted to do something you did not see. Correct. Correct. Um, and um. Another reason I think was because I thought attorneys got paid a lot of money and I was impoverished. Mm-hmm. And I think the, if I could give you a third reason that I wanted to be an attorney is because I I just want to be in a field that I thought was unique for my people. You know, not a lot of them unique and somebody has to do it. Mm-hmm. I saw Thurgood Marshall mm-hmm. and he was doing an outstanding job. And all of the black attorneys that I saw at the time were male and there weren't many of them. And so I want to be an attorney. Who was proud of you when you became a teacher? My um, godmother, who is a retired professor. She was extreme and remains extremely proud of me. Uh, becoming a teacher. She always thought that, well, the way they, they said it at the time, you know, that that Pamela Lightsey is really smart. And so when I left high school and didn't immediately go to college, she was really hurt by that. And so through the years until I went back to college, went to college, not even back to college, because I left high school and became and went into the military. And even when I was in the military, she would say, now, when are you going to school? When are you going to college? Because, you know, you need to get that degree. And so with every degree that I got in college, she was she was there for she was there for my first graduation. And she was not there for my doctorate, but her presence was there. 
you know. What's her and name? Say her name. Kate McClary. I say it with joy. Yeah, she was very, very proud of me and my children. You know, my children were extremely proud of me. My family especially proud of me because I was the first person in my family to get a degree and the first of my mother's children to graduate from high school. So first on your mother's side to graduate from high school and then when the first went. one out of the first the first of my mother's children yeah. Mm -hmm. to yeah to get a diploma and the first in my on my mother's side to get a college degree. But then went on to get a PhD in the same Absolutely. Yeah. Breath. So yeah, uh, first on you know on many levels for my family, for my children to witness. Mm -hmm. It was it was I remember those days, you know, and I remember um I I remember enjoying school, but I also remember it being a great responsibility. Like I can't let can't let my family down now that I've started this. Mm -hmm. So education is obligation for the community, for the family. Absolutely. Yeah. And and once I determined that I wanted a PhD, that was major. I mean, that was major. You know, my sister on her, you know, in the hospital was bragging uh, when I when I flew down to be with her, she would say, this is my sister, the doctor. Mm -hmm. She would say that to doctors and nurses. And mm -hmm. I would always say, not a medical doctor. Mm -hmm. But as far as my family is concerned, I'm a doctor, mm -hmm. you know, worthy to stand toe to toe with any medical doctor. Mm -hmm. yeah. Who influenced your teaching for the better? I think, um, I actually think my children, mm -hmm. because when I was going to school to get my first degree, they were also in high school. So they were twins. And before I, as I was divorcing, I knew that I wanted to continue. I had taken maybe three or four classes. And so I got my children around the table and I said to them, have you ever had a dream? And of course they had dreams. And so I said, mommy's always had a dream of getting her degree. So I need you to be on your best behavior while I'm in school so that I can finish this degree. And we would, my children and I would sit down and do our homework together. Um, and so I, I would be helping them with their homework as I was doing my work. And so sometimes when I ran into problems with my work. I hated math. So I got tutored by someone within my church who was a math teacher in high school. She tutored me mm -hmm. so that I could complete the math class in college. My children saw that this is something, this is where you help one another with teaching. You use the discipline that you have to help other people. And so that was in their mind. And I wanted to keep them understanding that not only is going to school important, but sharing what you've learned, which is teaching, eh, is important uh, in the way, in the various ways we, we share our, our teaching, our understanding. Mm -hmm. 
So that became very, that was very important to me. Also, um, thinking about models for teaching became very important to me. My son was expelled from school in his junior year of high school. And it's a long story, but as that was going on, I said to myself, my son has always not really been the kind of child who fits in that kind of cookie cutter public school or private school way of learning. He has always had his own kind of way of learning. And so I learned early on about pedagogy, good pedagogy, and how one has to use a variety of pedagogy for all the different characters you may have in one class. So that, that his way of, you know, learning how he learned influenced my teaching. And problem solving, a mother problem solving for her children is probably one of the best pedagogues there could be, right? That's what oh, absolutely. you're figuring stuff out because you're motivated yeah. by the love of your own children. Yeah, and I had to advocate for him all along the line, all along the way. I had to advocate for him to be allowed in an advanced math class, even though the test that he took, you know, these tests that they make kids take, he didn't do well on that test, but he was in these classes being bored and coming home and saying he has no homework. He was misbehaving in class, but making A's mm -hmm. and he wasn't testing well. And so I had to go to the school and say, don't put him in this you know, this average class, make, let's put him in the advanced class. And I had to really advocate for that. And the teachers didn't think he would do well. The boy would come home with grades during the semester of A's and B's in this math class. So I knew very early on that, that there are different styles for teaching and some, you know, we just can't, it's not one style that fits all. What has surprised you about teaching or the teaching life? I think my own energy about teaching, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm closer to retirement. <laughs> if you were to ask me this question five years ago, be a different answer. But right now I think about the energy that I brought to teaching when I first started and the energy that I have now for teaching. It's different. It's not, it's not less. It's not more. But I have different emphasis on different things because I've grown, I've matured. The things that were important to me when I started teaching, like having the perfect syllabus, that's no longer as important to me as thinking through with a class about what are the things that you want to get out of this, what is going to help you in as you understand your profession that you're working towards, what what is that? And so it's quite, I don't mind changing my syllabus according to what I hear in the room. Now, when I started out, no, it was like, look, I got two hours to put this thing together. We're going to follow this. We have measurable standards and the outcomes here. It's not as important to me. now. That's very well said. Um, but but that takes experience and trusting yourself and knowing the terrain of your own classroom and the, and the course that you created. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, it does. And it's not that I'm teaching courses that are totally different, 
what I'm doing now is teaching my courses in a different way mm-hmm. for a different time, mm-hmm. for a different season in our nation. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very important to me when living in a country where African-American history is being whitewashed, is is uh, being so deconstructed, is being so redefined for, you know, kindergarten through 12th grade students and for college students. Here I am in the graduate level and I'm getting students who know very, who know very little about African-American history and or what they know is filled with errors. And that saddens me. Uh And so I spend a great deal of time sometimes teaching on a undergraduate level to graduate students because they've just not gotten it. Now, am I angry about that? No, I'm, I'm, um, I'm at least happy that they made their way to my class mm-hmm. and that they can, they can get this. And for me, the blessing is watching people in my class, African-American, Asian of all, you know, ethnicities, racial, ethnic groups, sit in the class and say, you know, I, nobody ever taught me this, you know, that, you know, I, I, it's sad, but it also feel a great deal of responsibility and joy with being able to give this to them. I mean, it's one thing to stand in a moment with learners and hear them say, I didn't know. It's another thing to be able to stand in a moment when they say, I didn't know, I didn't know. Yeah. Right. So that, that takes a different kind of internal tensile strength, a kind of different kind of understanding of who we are as teachers to stand in that moment with them. So, I mean, I think I think what you said is very poignant to say teaching in this moment, not just as if as if our topics or teaching is generic, right? There's something about this moment um, that requires something different than it did 10, 15, 20 years ago. Absolutely. And if you don't teach for the moment, are you really teaching? Nope, I would say not. Yeah. Both of us would say not. What is a favorite nickname by which you are called by a loved one? Oh, this is such a messy question. (laughs) Yeah. Bacon. Bacon. B-A-C-O-N. Bacon. Yes. Are you good? Can you keep this? Can you? Frame must die. <laughs> no, no, you don't have to. No, I, I, I will. However, I love bacon and I would eat bacon every day if I could. I love bacon so much that my daughter calls me lovingly. Hey, bacon, how you doing today? Hey, bacon, bacon girl. You know, so we talk to one another like that. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And the other nickname is my dear, which my grandson has called me from birth. Yeah. From you know when he when he began to talk. Mm-hmm. What profession other than teaching would you like to attempt? Photography. I'm doing. I'm doing that now. You know a little bit about that. Mm-hmm. photography because um it helps me to slow down mm-hmm. it helps me to think about uh technique rather than outcome mm-hmm. 
and that's teaching. You know, what is the, is it, and in photography, for me, technique is more important than outcome. A lot of photographers spend their time in, in the processing stage, and that's after the picture has been taken. I'm not as um, caught up with processing as I am with trying to make sure I capture the subject, the material, as best I can, mm -hmm. and to learn from my mistakes. You know, what did I do wrong when I, you know, when I, when I took that picture? So photography is teaching me. So the, the artistry of it too, right? That I mean, part of what you were just, you were speaking as an artist, right? And we, we too often separate out artistry from teaching as if teaching does not have artistry in it. So you're reclaiming oh, yeah. the artistry of teaching. Oh, yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, you put your, you, you really, you that really resonated with me because yeah, teaching is art, and some people do it really good, and mm -hmm. some don't. Is some, I think some of my colleagues look at teaching as uh, the pouring into their students' information. Mm -hmm. You know, therefore, I'm going to stand here, I'm going to lecture, or we're going to have this conversation, and my task is to pour into you information. I don't see it in that way. I I see teaching for me as art, as craft, and we're sharing, we're sharing information. So I'm learning as much as they're learning. Like when I take, when I take pictures, I'm learning as much as I'm capturing a subject. I'm looking at that picture and thinking, oh man, it's too grainy. You know, what was the ISO when I took this picture? And I'm also looking at if I do subjects, I'm looking at the subjects, trying to think about if they're perfect strangers, I'm trying to think about what are the emotions that I'm capturing here, mm -hmm. you know, That's and the lovely. context. Yeah. The, all, all those artistic questions that go into photography, right, are very germane um, to being with learners, to being in the classroom. Yeah. Uh, next question. Do you enjoy writing in longhand? And if so, what is your preference of ink pen or writing utensil? This goes back to teaching. I want to say this. I don't enjoy writing in longhand because my second grade teacher, Mrs. Matthews, disabused me of writing cursive. My cursive, and they don't even do that anymore, do much anymore. I don't think they even teach it in school anymore. I was really bad at it. And at that time, teachers could actually hit a child. Mm -hmm. And and so she would hit me often on my knuckles with her ruler because my cursive was so bad. And, you know, th that's no way to teach. It was thought to be the best way to teach. Punish, you know, you learn through punishment. Well, you, there are things you do learn through punishment, but you can be traumatized. They could traumatize the hell out of you so that you just despise what it is that you're supposed to be learning. So longhand writing was never a favorite of mine. And once I didn't, I no longer had to write in cursive, I stopped. The only, the only cursive I use these days is my signature. I prefer to type on my keyboard in my computer because when I was in the military, I was a trained data specialist with a secret security clearance. 
And I learned how to type proficiently quite with, with, I mean, major speed. I could key out information with just, I was really good at it. And so my, I was often used to key out data because of the swiftness. And so that kind of reward on the key, using the keyboard um, just really is the reason why I prefer the keyboard. When I use an ink pen, uh, I like roller balls, mm-hmm. you know. Next question. What's your superpower? I think the ability to sit and listen to people as mm-hmm. they talk, to listen deeply to not what is said, but what is not said. So I love to sit on a panel with scholars and professors as we're speaking to one another. And in my mind, I'm filling in the gaps of what is not said and what should be said, depending upon the subject matter. So I think my superpower is, is listening. Some would call it discernment in the moment, but that has that has served me well. And I also, if I may, um, I agree with the contemplative aspect that you just described. I'm going to go back to that advocacy that you talked about for your son as well. Mm -hmm. People know that if there's something they need, you will advocate for them. Yeah, I'm, 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 I'm really well known as an advocate. And uh, it's a strange thing. The way people think about you is not often the way you think about yourself. Sure. I think very, I think very little of that. I mean, I that for me is because it's so natural. That's how I was raised. I again, I came up during the civil rights movement. You're supposed to do this. You're supposed to help your neighbor. You're supposed to be there when someone is being harmed. These are things you're, and it's just so. These are natural things, and it aggravates me when people aren't treated justly. So, yes, and I do receive that, but it always, I mean, if, if I'm out and about, especially with my girlfriend and someone who, who I don't know, but who knows me, comes up and thanks me for my work, I really do appreciate it. But I feel really strange inside. It's as though they're talking about somebody else. And I, I often tell my girlfriend, I'm so, I, I don't often know how to respond to it, but I'm always humbled by it. It is a, it's like, wow. Maybe my Urkel, my inner Urkel, I'm thinking, did I do that? <laughs> no, she's going to invoke Urkel. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to leave Urkel where he was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, here's question number nine. Question number nine is an infamous question. Get ready for question number nine. Okay. What's your favorite cuss word? Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> is that it? That's, the- That's it. <laughs> <laughs> and in that way. <laughs> I was just gonna say an expression of frustration. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And sometimes, you know what, when I'm reading the Bible, uh-huh. Randall Bailey did this to me. When I especially the Hebrew Bible and so so like Hagar, you know, these women who've been so abused by these men. And, you know, like when God tells Hagar to go back, Randall Bailey says it much better than I do. And there's nothing in the text about her response. She just goes back to, 
to her abuser. Well, Randall Bailey says, when after God tells her to go back, her, her response is, oh, shit. <laughs> you know, As it should so have been. I read the text a lot. Mm-hmm. I read the text a lot for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Filling in the silent places. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, how have you survived certain violences in teaching? Yeah, that's a big one. Because it is survival, isn't it? Um, to be honest with you, sometimes it's fight or flight. Sometimes I've just left. I, I've needed to leave those situations in order to secure my peace. Um, yeah, I can think of <clears throat> one place, one job I was at that I couldn't wait to leave. And I had actually left within my being before I physically left. I had actually checked out Mm -hmm. because my ability to be creative um, was so limited that what I, I checked out, I did what I was asked to do and I did not involve my creative self. That's a bad place for a scholar to be. It's, and it's a bad, it's a bad feeling. It's a bad place for the scholar to be, and it's also not good for an institution because you they don't get the best of who you are. So sometimes to protect myself, it's been that. Um, other times it's been me standing ten toes down and saying, "No, you know, this is this is not going to happen." Um, and these are the ways that I. I believe I've survived. So it's not been one thing. It's been a number of different things. I think creativity challenges toxicity. And so much, so many faculties, educational institutions are so toxic. Precisely what you just described. If I cannot be creative here, then my creativity will not help the toxicity. And so there's there's like no cleanup, right? There's not, nobody's, nobody's filtering the toxicity. None. No, and it, and it's, um, unfortunately, students don't get the best education that their hard-earned dollars mm-hmm. are paying for, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm not in that kind of space right now. I'm very happy. Uh, we've done some good things in this because I've been allowed to be creative. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And your definition of creativity is and so I'm able to bring the best of myself to my job, to my students, to my colleagues, right? So that means that's that is so meaningful, right? Yes, yes, yes. And uh, not every day is not sunshine, you know. When you're mm-hmm. working with different people, yep. you know, sometimes the people get on my nerves, mm-hmm. but I don't feel like oh, I'm done. <laughs> You know, it's nothing else, mm-hmm. nothing else I can do at this institution. Mm-hmm. I I actually wake up in the morning and love going when I'm going into my office, love going to my job. I usually get there. I mean, hours before the job opens, before the office opens, just because I love that space and I'm, I love what I'm doing. And I, I often stay out. The people are gone, too. Next question. What healings have you witnessed or received in teaching or the teaching life? Yeah, I think um, 
I yeah, this is very. I think the ability to be to vi revisit the death of one of my sisters mm -hmm. who was mentally disabled and uh, who was also diabetic. And she died of a diabetic coma because she was given an instrument that she didn't know how to use. There was no teaching involved with that. Uh, they thought they had taught her, but I was really angry for a while with the physicians. I was like, how could you give someone who has the chat, who has the, the mental capacity of a fourth grader, this very complex tool? Um, I was really angry about that. Being in the academy, especially over the last seven, eight years, I work with more and more students who have ADA, at, you know, accommodations problems. Uh, and I, I'm growing older too, so I have some of my own. Early on, I was less, I think I was less open and less helpful. I didn't impede upon my students who have disability issues, but I didn't do as much. Uh, but with more and more of that happening, it's caused me to revisit the disability within my own family and to be um, gentler mm -hmm. and to think about uh, mental health issues in a way that I don't know that I would think about them. I would probably keep holding them in the back of my own head were it not for the fact that in academia, we are now seeing more and more of it. So I can't even, I can't run from my past. I can't run from myself as I age in my short-term memory. It's, you know, this happens to us all. But being in the academy, uh, like I said, these last seven or so years and seeing it increase more and more, and I think it's, some of it's due to social media, has made me far gentler um, and more of an advocate than I considered myself at the early part of my career. Um, what have you enjoyed most about the teaching life? Oh, learning from students. Uh -huh. Say more, yes. Oh, I love it. I so love it. You know, my... When I'm in the class, I love, like you, you, we talked about the artistic side of me, which people don't often ask me about, but I open my classroom up for music and students bring in the beginning of several of my classes. We, we, they walk into an atmosphere of music that someone has curated. One of the students have curated. And so I'm, I'm learning new music, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm learning new artists which makes me so happy because some of it, I, I don't know what the hell they're saying, you know, <laughs> but I like it. I like the bump of it. You know, I like what they're saying, you know, at least what I think they're saying, at least the chorus part, I can do that. So I like that. And I like um, learning new vocabulary, especially my the, the LGBTQ students. Oh my goodness, they teach me things and what and words that 
I'm like, really? Is that is that is that how we rolling now? Is that mm-hmm. what? Oh, okay. So I love that, mm-hmm. and they actually get a kick out of watching me look. So I'm it, what when they say things, sometimes I'm just shocked by it all. Oh, they are too. They are too tickled. You know, they are too tickled that they have brought me to that level where mm-hmm. I'm just, you know, where I'm shocked, but I'm learning. And I love that. Yeah. It's, a, it's a it's it's not only it's a mutual respect that's going on in the classroom, you know. And I think think that teaching ought to have there ought to be mutual respect always in the classroom. Mm-hmm. Respect, and that's because learning happens on so many different levels, so many different stages of life. So they're learning and they are teaching me. I've, I've said that before and I love it. Last question. Mm-hmm. So not now, but at the conclusion of your teaching career, what miracles will you have performed? I don't know that it's a miracle. Um, I, I, and that I, I, I will say that I know that my teaching, especially my writing, has been received as life-giving for some people who people who are not even in my classroom. And they've written me and told me that they read my works and it kept them from committing suicide. So I have saved a couple of those letters. And that for me for someone to say to to take the time first to write you to say your work was not only life giving but life saving been worth it all it's been worth it all to me you know and that is miraculous yes it is it 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 really is on a on a major major level and i didn't i didn't seek to save lives you know i just wanted i wanted to teach and you don't say it without humility, but part of it is we have to understand the power that we are given in these positions to mm-hmm. do these miraculous things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, when I was growing up teaching, I mean, I grew up early on in segregated schools and those and I went to a HBCU and some of those professors were really hard. I mean, they were hard, like, I mean, my segregated, I mean, they were like, you going to get this. I got, I don't care if you don't like getting it because I got mine and you need to get yours. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, as I approach, I'm approaching the age of retirement. I don't go at it so hard, mm-hmm. you know, because my ego, my ego is not invested in this. You know, I know it's important for some of my colleagues to talk about, you know, how they how they dress down a student, you know, and what they did when they went. That I cringe when I hear those kinds of stories, you know, because I just, I don't want to hurt anybody in the classroom. I really don't. And I go out of my way to make sure that it's wholesome in the classroom. And I don't need to be on a pedestal as a professor. In fact, I think I do my best teaching when I'm just around the table in a circle with everybody and we're talking, I've also, you know, taught we're sitting down on the ground, you know, on the grass, you know, eating food and so I, and, and learning from one another as we laugh and 
and eat and or drink wine or something like that. I'm human being to human being, I think that's when I'm on when I'm at my best as a professor. Have all life for you. Thank you so much. You're it was, welcome. It was delightful. This conversation was delightful. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It was very good talking to you all too. To our listeners, we encourage you to subscribe to our Wabash Center newsletters. Teaching Hub and Media Drop are intended to inform you of all of our doings. Also look at our Wabash Center website for all of our uh, program activities. A special thanks to our sound engineer, Dr. Paul Myrie. A special thanks to Rachel Mills, our podcast producer. The music which frames the silhouette podcast is the original composition of Paul Myrie. Wabash Center for more than 28 years is exclusively funded by Lilly Endowment Incorporated. And we are out. How was that, Paul? Mm -hmm.